You're listening to Icebreakers, the podcast exploring all things Canadian and Eurasian, business, culture, and personalities. The series is produced by CECC, the Canada-Eurasia Chamber of Commerce. We are a nonprofit focusing on trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. I'm your host, Nathan Hunt, one of the founders of CECC and former chairman of the National Board. I invite you to tune in regularly for valuable insights related to the region. Hello, everybody. We're joined today by Eldor Manopov, graduate from Durham University in the UK with a master's degree in international commercial and trade law. He is managing partner at Denton's in Uzbekistan and well-regarded for his leading role on cross-border M&A transactions and investments, as well as acting for international clients, establishing their Uzbek operations. In addition to his legal practice, he is a senior lecturer and course leader with the law faculty at Westminster International University in Tashkent, and he was uh, recently appointed honorary consul of Canada in the Republic of Uzbekistan. I believe that was in 2017 and has been leading the consulate of Canada in Tashkent since that time. Uh, good morning, Eldor. Good morning. Good evening, Nathan. Nice to see you. Good evening, your time. Yes, quite a time difference. What can you tell us about your background? Why, why, did you choose to be a lawyer? Did that profession choose you? How, how is it you, you became a lawyer? Actually, uh, at uh, high school, I, I studied uh, science and uh, I was planning to become a doctor. So I took courses to biology, chemistry, and I kind of prepared for a medical exam. So you were actually you were actually considering an honorable profession, is what you went to say. <laughs> yeah, which is more useful. <laughs> but uh, when it was like a few left weeks left before exam dates, my um, aunt said, "You know, Eldor, why you want to spend like nine years of your life, you know, before you qualify? Go something which earns more money." And at that time, you know, to become lawyer, I think it was like quite fashionable. Uh, I said, okay, why not? I, I sat exam and I got scholarship. So I entered the University of, of World Economy and Diplomacy. 97, it was an international law course. That's how I started. That was in Uzbekistan. Yeah, that was in Uzbekistan. And that university was established soon after independence. And that university during Soviet time was Partina uh, Shkola. So that was a special school for training party leaders, and after independence, it was transformed into university where they taught international law, international relations, and international economic relations. So I was privileged to enter that university. And how did you get your, then in, your gig with the Durham University? How did you get managed to, to, to leave to the UK? How did you get connected with them? Uh, so, so my luck did not end there. And in 99, two years at the end of my second year, I applied to a presidential scholarship I won the scholarship. There was big competition. Uh, I was one uh, out of 36 uh, candidates. Uh, and uh, there was a presidential fund called UMIT, which stands for HOPE. So I got that scholarship and then entered Durham University and I studied uh, my undergraduate degree there. You got a presidential scholarship, one out of 36 applicants. That's impressive. Yeah, that was, I was lucky, as I said. Lucky or maybe smart, maybe both. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. Good for you. And what years? Help me with the years. What, what years were you in the UK? Uh, so I did my undergraduate 99 to 2002. 
And then I came back to Uzbekistan. I worked for one year and then went back, got married, went back, uh, and then did my master's and came back 2004. And since then, I'm here. And you started your own law firm, I think. Am I right? In 2004 or 2005? No, no. 2008, early 2008. Okay. And uh, at what point did you get uh, hooked up with uh, one, one of the largest, or isn't it the largest uh, international law firm in the world? Yes, it, uh, currently it is the largest international law firm in the world. And we started this conversation in 2016, uh, March. Uh, and by the time we kind of merged, it was um, June 2017. So it took about more than a year. Well, congratulations on that. Uh, we we have, have a long and illustrious relationship with Dentons, and we appreciate uh, the service we get from them, I can tell you. Now, I'm talking about the Moscow office of Dentons. I haven't worked with, with your branch in Tashkent, but uh, hopefully some of our CECC members will get that opportunity. Now, tell us a little bit about the work you've done. You've been involved in some pretty high-level mergers and acquisitions, as I recall. Something involving uh, Coca-Cola? Yes, uh, uh probably one of the landmark uh, M&A deals or privatization projects we've been involved as Dentons in the past um, year or so was uh, privatization of Coca-Cola. And of course, I, I assume for many of our listeners in Canada, probably it will sound very odd to, to see that Coca-Cola is privatized. But actually in Uzbekistan, until relatively recently, majority stake in Coca-Cola bottles were uh, owned by by the government. Really? How on earth did that come about? I guess Coca-Cola decided that was the most efficient way to enter the market, huh? Well, I think, uh, no, uh, Coca-Cola, I think, entered as a private, uh, with pi private partners, and uh, their shares were at some point nationalized, uh, and it has a certain history with a previous, um, let's say, president's uh, family. That's all in the past, and then the government decided to privatize it, and this was successfully completed in 2021. Nationalization is a dirty word in Canada, so be careful. Sometimes happens. <laughs> and I'm going, to, I'm going to be provocative now and return to a very, uh, I would say, dark era in relations between Uzbekistan and the West when uh, Newmont Gold, uh, this was 25 years ago, was nationalized or they had their license revoked or something something bad happened in the 1990s and that cast a pall on relations between Uzbekistan and the rest of the world for a long time what happened then and what has changed in the country now that uh, things are different well I think uh, uh, as you said this has happened 25 years ago you know uh, 25 years ago it would be very difficult to find people who would speak English let alone to have uh, history or experience of uh, operating under free market conditions. So Uzbekistan was part of Soviet Union and uh, many decisions were taken in Moscow. So the economy was planned. The whole process, basically everything negative you can talk, think of the communist regime, right? So when the country became independent, of course, in good, with good intentions, they opened the market and then they entered into agreements. And uh, I assume that at some point, maybe agreement was not ideal or maybe one-sided or the government felt it was not comfortable with its terms or how it's implemented. And, uh, you know, they got out of the deal. My understanding is if the state wants to terminate, it will terminate one way or another. And uh, may not be always pleasant experience, but that's something which happens. It's interesting that the American Chamber of Commerce 
at a visit, uh, you know, CECC had a delegation there about 10 years ago with um, Ambassador John Kerr at the time. And this, the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce told us that both parties were at fault, that it wasn't a simple nationalization, that uh, the Western partner and the Uzbekistani partner exactly. uh, failed to come to an agreement. But, yeah, uh, yeah. but anyway, I, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about what's happening now because uh, Uzbekistan is uh, one of the most, if not the most vibrant, uh, uh, highly developing and attractive markets in Central Asia today. What has happened? What has changed? Uh, what, what happened in 2017? The change happened uh, from uh, end of 2016. So our first president, he uh, passed away in September 2016. Uh, and uh, then prime minister, um, he took office uh, on interim basis and he ran for presidency and he was elected as a new president December 2016. We're talking about Mr. Mirzayev. Yes, uh, President Mirzayev, uh, Shaukat Mirzayev. So he uh, got into office in uh, December 2016, and that's when uh, all these uh, major reforms uh, started in sw full swing. And actually, he started even before um, election. And uh, we have to remember that uh, President Mirzayev at that time was prime minister, but he was uh, had very low profile, and you would never hear or see him in public that much. But uh, uh, looking back backwards, we can see that he was taking a lot of notes during his prime minister's uh, term. And uh, what he did, been doing so far, trying to systematically resolve those, those uh, stumbling blocks which he has seen during his term as prime minister. Uh, major reforms were to do with uh, conversion of uh, uh, our currency. So since 2017, Uzbek Sum is freely convertible to uh, hard currency. So that uh, resolved problems for investors, foreign companies trying to expatriate their dividends or uh, also helped with you know, cross-border transactions. So it's much easier to convert. Now it's no problem to convert Sum to dollars or euros to do export or import operations. As long as you have money, you can freely uh, engage in uh, cross-border trade. Now, I'm going to interrupt you because I remember trying to do deals in Uzbekistan in the early 2010s, and, and we'd have a good or some machinery that the Uzbeki side wanted. They, they were happy to pay for it, but they didn't have any money. They said, all we have is sums, and it's not convertible, so we'll give you cotton instead. Or uh, we'll give you some dried fruits instead. And all you could do was barter. I remember being frustrated because we had, you know, a price and equipment and a buyer, a seller. Everything was in place. There was simply no payment mechanism in spite of the fact that the buyer did have money, but they couldn't convert it. Yeah, so they couldn't convert. And obviously, because of uh, artificial prohibition, you had like three different levels of uh, conversion rate. You had official rate. You had uh, so-called bazaar or market rate, and then you had uh, rate at uh, so-called uh, commodity markets. So official rate would be one dollar four thousand sum. Uh, in uh, in bazaar it will be one dollar eight thousand sum, and then in commodity exchange market one dollar twelve thousand sum. So it's three times. So that was a major blockage for trade, and a lot of gray schemes were kind of crafted by business people. Well, I can tell you I much prefer payment in U.S. dollars to payment in dried fruits, as much as I love dried fruits. Don't get me wrong. Well, I think today there's no problem with that. <laughs> That's good to hear. Good to hear. I will also tell you, anybody who traveled to Uzbekistan back then, 10 years ago, remembers carrying around 
sackfuls of money, literally sackfuls of money. If you wanted to pay for your hotel in Sooms, you had to, to, to bring a sack with uh, maybe uh, uh, you know, 28 or 30 or 40 packs, you know, rubber band, uh, rubber banded packs of Sooms. Uh, and people would carry those sacks around with them to pay for, uh, you know, to, to pay for more or less expensive things. What was what was going on then, and how has that changed now? Well, I think at that time uh, they did not print higher denomination uh, paper money because maybe they were trying to conceal true rates of inflation. And I think a uh, uh, fundamental problem was that uh, all decisions were taken by one person, and people didn't want to bring him bad news. And everybody was suffering from, you know, uh, having to carry all these, you know, kilos of money because it's a, it's a headache to count. Imagine how much time you would uh, spend to count, you know, one million sum. It's a five note, you know, or I don't know, small banknotes. Yeah, yeah. You you have to have a strong back to carry all that money. Yes, and then a lot of time to to count. <laughs> And uh, by hand, you know, uh, and uh, uh, this is another uh, monetary policy was uh, uh, reformed and we have a big uh, nomination denominated currency. So it's uh, not issue anymore. And uh, why it's not issue anymore, actually, not only because of the paper money, but also, I mean, or cash money. Uh, at the time, there was also difference between cash money and uh, money on your card. So can you imagine one sum cash was more valuable than one sum on your bank card? And then you, you, it's like 20% difference. Hmm. And of course, people were very much encouraged to keep money in cash because of that difference, because you could not freely use your cards. Bank, shops would not accept your card, etc., etc. A lot of corruption. And uh, uh, in the new term, this is also resolved. So now people actually prefer to keep their money on in bank ac uh, account in cards rather than carry cash because it's safer. Yeah, it is. Well, and, uh, in Canada, probably they take it for granted. But you know, these kind of things can be quite important. <laughs> quite important. I can I can remember paying for a conference that we ordered with a suitcase full of money. We had to bring literally a suitcase full of money to pay for the conference. Pay the organizer. Exactly. But anyway, tell us about some of the reforms. I mean, you you rattled off a list of about 20 things that I wrote down that impressed me that the new government is doing. What has changed? What are some of these reforms? So currency reform we mentioned. Second is tax reform. This was a major uh, reform in relation to tax taxation. So uh, the government passed a new tax code. Uh, whereby uh, effective tax rates have been reduced. For example, VAT uh, has been reduced from 20% to 15%, and it's expected that it will be further reduced next year, maybe to 13%. Uh, one and second, VAT chain uh, uh, now works as it's supposed to work. In the past, it didn't work properly. Uh, companies don't have problems with uh, ex repatriating their profits in form of dividend. So uh, the Corporate profit tax in Uzbekistan is about 15%. Dividend tax is 10%. That's very low. That's very low. Now, I'm going to interrupt you. You said VAT chain. What you mean is that companies couldn't get their VAT back, right? Exactly. Exactly. And now they can? Yes. Yes. Quite easily or is it still a struggle? Well, I, I don't say it is kind of... Uh, 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 so smooth. Of course, there are some uh, problems with paperwork, etc. But it's all done electronically, so it is uh, possible to offset to get back your 
uh, VAT. So uh, it is, it's not the same type of problem as you, you would have it like five years ago, you know. Well, that's refreshing to hear. Great to hear. Now, you said taxes are down. Corporate income tax is down to what, 15%, you said? 15%, yeah. Very low. And, and what is personal income tax at? Well, another tax which has been reduced is 12 uh, personal income tax. Now it's 12%. Used to be 20, 24%. Uh, now it is flat 12%. And then social tax was 25%. I think now it is also 12% for private companies. So um, the tax uh, on payroll is quite uh, uh, competitive. And therefore, businesses are very much encouraged to pay salaries officially uh, so that people, you know, entitled for their pensions, etc. So overall tax regime has been most, has become more stable, transparent, underst you know, understandable. And now public companies uh, and state-owned companies gradually are being required to do their booking, uh, bookkeeping in line with uh, international financial reporting standards. So the government is... Um, requiring them to do the accounting in line with international standards, I think, which is also quite helpful in uh, medium term. Well, that is helpful. IFRS is, is uh, something that even many Russian companies don't have yet, and that's, uh, that will be a wonderful change if it, if it you know, becomes quite uh, common in Uzbekistan, I can tell you. What else can you tell us? I mean, you had a corruption problem, I think. Is that, has that been resolved or reduced or what's... Well, I think corruption problem uh, is a still significant problem uh, when it comes to public procurement and uh, public administration, especially when it comes to land rights. I think corruption is still can be a major issue. Uh, however, one good thing, uh, you know, imagine we've been independent for 30 years, but until this government, we never had the law on public procurement. So the government passed law on public procurement. The government is uh, working on the law relating to civil servants. Uh, so uh, many laws have been passed which were never passed in the past. But at least there is a movement in um, addressing those um, uh, issues. I can tell you from personal experience, uh, we were called Serba back then. Uh, Serba tried to register a chapter in Uzbekistan and we had applied and it was taking us a long time. We met, we had some sticking points, uh, and we had a large delegation coming to Uzbekistan in May, I want to say, of 2019. And we really asked the government if there's something that can be done to, to please speed up our application process. Uh, and lo and behold, the day before the delegation arrived, we got the, the, the note from the, from the ministry that you are officially open, your chapter is registered, Serba is now an official functioning legal entity in Uzbekistan. So uh, we were pretty pleased with the, with the service we got from, uh, from our government uh, handlers at that point. Well, actually, establishing business in Uzbekistan is quite um, simple. If you have all paperwork, it's possible to set up company within one day now. And... Uh, Talking about corruption, the government recognizes that, and what been, the government has been doing is to implement so-called e-government, so that many public services are provided online uh, with minimum human interface as possible. So the government passed law regulation, first of all, listing the list of, uh, there could be some services which you didn't even know existed. So the government then said, let's do inventory of what kind of services we actually provide. And then uh, once we know this inventory, let's see which one of these are licenses, permits, which have to be canceled and which can be done online. 
So and um, government working in that uh, direction. So now many services are provided online. So for example, certain licenses to obtain, you, you cannot do on in person anymore. You have to file applications uh, electronically. Tax filing, fully electronic filing for a majority of permits and licensing also electronic. So which makes, uh, the idea is to make it cheaper, faster, and fundamentally um, to reduce corruption, you know. Well, what you're saying is music to my ears and to our ears collectively, I would say. I've had a love relationship, a love affair with Uzbekistan ever since I first visited the country in 2007. I have a, a very close uh, Uzbekistani friend, uh, Furkat Adilov, who, uh, whom I've known for, for uh, almost 30 years, he and his family. And he showed me Uzbekistan the first time, Samarkand, uh, the beautiful marketplaces of Bukhara, the mountains of Bildersai the fabulous museums of Tashkent. Uh, but of course, Samarkand sticks in your mind as quite quite a jewel. I mean, most people don't realize that uh, what we consider Arabian stories like Alibaba and the 40 Thieves or Aladdin and the Magic Lamp, that all took place in Samarkand. That all took place in Uzbekistan, didn't it? And now you have an economic forum, I believe, in Samarkand coming up. Is that right? Yeah, I think uh, in uh, September, there should be a big meeting of Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Uh, it's scheduled for September. I don't remember the dates. And then uh, uh, we're expecting uh, the economic forum maybe in uh, in November. Uh, November, that late. I had thought earlier. Okay. I don't know the dates, but uh, maybe earlier, but it's not uh, settled yet, I think. Well, I can tell you, I'm always looking for an excuse to visit Samarkand. That's one of the most beautiful cities in the world, in my opinion. So this will provide me a nice one. <laughs> now, tell me a little bit about the mining climate. Of course, you know, we, we always say that we're not just a natural resources association, but we are highly focused on natural resources. We have mining companies that are, that are members, as you know. We have some that are active in Uzbekistan. Some, I think you can name names because it's public information. But what can you tell us about the climate for mining companies, foreign mining companies operating in Uzbekistan? So uh, what we can say about, um, you know, uh, Uzbekistan, I think two largest uh, taxpayers are in mining sector. You know, Nawai Mining Company and Almalik Mining Company. I think those two behemoths, they are, account for most of GDP, I guess, um, and as a de definitely biggest taxpayers. So Uzbekistan is rich in mineral resources, you know, gold, uranium, copper, silver, and many, many, including rare earth uh, metals. And uh, until recently, this industry was predominantly uh, state-owned because this is kind of strategic. And uh, uh, we have this uh, concept, if it's strategic, it should be owned by state. And these uh, companies, uh, for example, both of these companies, they were foundations for cities, you know, Nawai City or Zarafshan City, Al Malik City, you cannot imagine without these companies. These cities grew and were established around these um, companies. We call them factory towns. We have them in Canada as well. Yeah, factory towns, exactly. And therefore, the, the mining regulatory framework was not so advanced because when it's state-owned, uh, there's, uh, you know, uh, there were... Uh, going on inertia for, based on, you know, because they're directly accountable to the cabinet of ministers. I think many things were settled directly by the government. But with, again, with uh, coming of the new president to power, he wanted to improve efficiency in this area as well. And of course, efficiency means private sector. One of the 
initiatives uh, which is being implemented is to develop new subsoil law. And I know the government is working on it. Maybe this year or early next year they're expected to pass the subsoil law. And uh, based on this law, the system will be uh, on license basis. So uh, mining companies, they will have to uh, basically buy license either to develop uh, fields which are already with uh, proven reserves or if uh, it's a prospective fields without proven reserve then uh, the government uh, geology committee will run a tender where they can participate you know uh, get license uh, as a, on the basis of the auctions so the, uh, and now for the past two years i think the geology committees are doing online auctions so they putting out um, fields especially for gold and i think for gold fields not very big for private investors to uh, to bid and then develop those fields. And uh, I, I know that number of um, auctions being successfully completed and a lot of small private, let's say junior companies trying to kind of um, develop such uh, fields. And uh, uh, also in respect of some types of minerals, uh, government is also doing direct negotiations with foreign uh, companies or license licensors to develop other types of uh, minerals. Um, uh, so in that sense, I think, uh, I wouldn't say the market is very much open, but it is definitely moving in that direction. Big stumbling block in mining uh, is, I think, to do with taxation. So uh, royalty tax was very high, uh, like 25% or something like that. Uh, the government reduced it to 8% or 7%, which is in line with international practice. However, uh, government uh, last year introduced new tax called rent tax, rent tax, which again may, may make some projects economically non-feasible. So uh, uh, maybe that's a stumbling block right now. And I think government will change that because, you know, for mining, uh, to enter into mining business, you have to have a very stable tax environment because the, the, Cycle there is quite big, you know. You can't plan for five years. A long-term, long-term project. You can't. Uh, you can't have the laws changing every year for sure. So I think that's. Uh, so the government working on the new mining law, and uh, I think they're also kind of testing and seeing, trying to find a balanced approach with respect to taxation. I don't say it is balanced or ideal yet, but that's the uh, movement. And uh, another aspect, you know, uh, relating to mining is. Um, uh, standards, how you prove reserves, and then because that's important for financing, as you may appreciate. Very important. Uh, and I think government um, understands that uh, they need to int um, introduce recognizing uh, international standards like JORC. So now the government knows and they, they, they understand that these uh, reserves should be approved not only by state reserve committee, whatever, but also um, independently in line with JORC standards. And I think uh, that there is a movement in that direction. Well, that will be a welcome reform. It's it's something that neighboring Kazakhstan has undertaken recently. And I think they've seen great dividends as a result. What what Canadian companies are active? I think there's, there's at least, are, are there any junior miners active or is it all big boys? Well, uh, as you know, B2Gold is active. They've been doing exploration for the past uh, couple of years. And uh, yeah, we have great respect for them. Yeah, and they I think, uh, been investing steadily. And uh, I know they have very good cooperation with uh, 
geology committee. I think uh, geology committee they're learning a lot from B two Gold, and B two Gold also learning a lot in um, in this uh, market. I'm not aware of other Canadian companies, but uh, what we see, we see uh, Turkish or Chinese uh, investors or developers who are, uh, have some assets or trying to enter to Uzbek market in mining sector. But uh, but as you would expect, uh, when I speak to them, those let's say Turkish mining company, they would have some um, affiliation with Canada. They are listed in. Uh, uh, Toronto Stock Exchange, or they have a partner in Canada, something like that. So uh, sometimes uh, we see Canadian companies' presence indirectly, let's say. Yeah, TSX is certainly the place to list if you're in mining. You know, I hope, I don't know if you have any input into this new law, but I would hope there would be some provision for claim staking. That's something that didn't make its way into the original Russian law. And we lobbied hard for 10 years, and finally it was uh, incorporated into into the law. The, the Rosnedra, the, the Subsoil Commission, uh, eventually lobbied to have a provision included where, uh, you know, if a junior miner comes in and there are no proven reserves, but they do discover something, then they're able to, to take it over without having to go to tender. And I hope that some similar provision will be included in the Uzbekistan. Yeah, uh, um, I think it's to do the uh, exclusivity right, you mean, right, in, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Something like that, yeah. I'm I'm speaking over my pay grade. Just so you, I'm pretending to be an expert in mining, though I'm actually I'm actually an idiot. So so you you probably know more than me. Yeah, well, uh, I'm not a mining lawyer either. But my understanding the the logic um, in the new law will be that if you if you have the right for exploration, uh, and then if you carry out exploration, then you will have priority right for production. So. If you uh, explore and then find the reserve or whatever, then the government cannot just take away from you and give to uh, some other company for production. So you will have exclusive right for production on that field. And I think that principle it will be firmly embodied in the new, in the new law, as, as I understand. Conversion of exploration license into production license. That's very important in, in Russia as well. Very important. Yes. Tell us a little bit, some, some personal stories. I know you met the prior ambassador of, uh, of Canada in Russia and Uzbekistan and Armenia. That was John Kerr. And he, he was the one, I think, that invited you to become honorary consul. Is that right? Did you have any, any personal stories with him? Uh, well, we have, yes, a lot of personal stories uh, when he visited Tashkent. And one of them is when we, you know, uh, visited Hiva for a couple of days. Uh, I think this was before end of his uh, term as uh, ambassador. What a beautiful city that is. What a beautiful city. My wife and I went there for her birthday four years ago, and we just had a wonderful time. Yeah, it is. Uh, so we went to Hiva, and then we took uh, a car to uh, Nukus to visit Savitsky Museum. And then uh, uh, and the museum was, you know, splendid. You know, we, we very much enjoyed, um, you know, it is, uh, you know, mind-blowing to to see what you can find there in the middle of you know desert you know right? so that kind of um, uh, art objects and uh, another surprise for us was um, you know to have a fish in the middle of desert you know fish <laughs> so uh, yeah so you would not you know uzbekistan being double landlocked country you usually you know people come here and say oh this is a place for meat or for plov uh, Shashlik, but actually um, in Horizon, uh Bukhara, they, they can make a very good fish with um, 
Sazan, I think it's a carp, right? A type of carp, yes. yes. So on the way back, uh, from uh, um, from Nukus to Hiva, our driver said, I'll, I'll take you a very good place for uh, fish, you know, and we were both like skeptical, you know, come on, is it going to be safe? <laughs> <laughs> but then took us to a very nice uh, restaurant and uh, the fish was superb, you know, it's a very nice. Well, that's nice to hear. Now, you've, you've touched on a national tragedy 65 years ago, there was plenty of fish because you had a, a teeming uh, uh, supply from the Aral Sea. Yeah. Uh, but the Aral Sea is no more, uh, not, much, not much left to speak of anyway. What happened there and what is being done to ameliorate what remains? I think uh, Aral Sea or strategy of Aral Sea is another, what we inherited from Soviet times. You know, it's one of the, let's say, very bad, uh, least to say, practices in Soviet times when you chase after numbers, plans, you know, you want to beat everybody without being very sustainable. I think uh, during Soviet times, uh, then leaders set, uh, set a goal, you know, 6 million tons of cotton. We want to be ahead of the planet. And uh, the cost of that planning, that we, we have the major international, you know, environmental disaster. Because I, I remember in some of the visits, they say, you know, the uh, traces of sand from the bottom of RLC, uh, you can find, find today in even the Arctic, you know, the wind taking these traces even to the North Pole, you know. So uh, that's uh, the impact of this um, environmental tragedy, unfortunately. Yeah, the sea was depleted to almost nothing, and there's, there's still a few finger lakes left of the sea. But I think they're trying to to at least save the land where the sea used to be to to, to turn the the sand into something more fertile. Are they not? Yes. Um, yeah. The the government uh, actually is spending a considerable amount of money uh, to uh, plant special uh, trees to keep the sand from moving. And uh, and I think they uh, planted you know millions of those trees. I, I don't know what the size, how many thousands or millions of hectares. But the government has been systematically for the past couple of years planting special trees. And actually it's been quite successful because it is kind of creating a new type of, let's say, ecology there, you know, for as a safe haven for certain types of animals, etc., etc. But trying to preserve what they have and then to mitigate harm from, you know, the consequences of drying up of the, of the sea. So we used to have a sea. A hundred years from now, we'll have a nice forest there instead. Well, fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can tell you, I have the greatest respect for the Uzbek people. And I'm going to tell a little story that I shouldn't because it's not related to business. My 86-year-old mother wanted to visit someplace exotic, and she's just about on her last trip. She's now 89, by the way, and she's doing just fine. But she was 86 three years ago. And I said, well, let's go visit Uzbekistan. For my wife and I, it's one of the favorite countries in the world. We love the, the, the place. We have friends there. We went there. And one of the places we went to see was the grave of St. Daniel, who is uh, an honored saint, as you know, in the Muslim faith, in the Jewish faith, in the Christian faith. Uh, all faiths revere Daniel. And his grave uh, is, is in, is it, is it outside of Samarkand or is it outside of Tashkent? I'm, I'm showing my ignorance. I don't remember where we were. Uh, I think it's outside Samarkand. Okay, so that's where we were, and it closes at 7 o'clock, and we arrived smack dab right at 7 o'clock, and the guy had already locked up, and he said, I'm sorry, I'm on my way home. Can you come back tomorrow? And we said, well, we can't because we're leaving you know, tomorrow morning on the train. And he looked at his watch, 
And he looked at us and I said, my 86 year old mother, you know, really wanted to see the grave. And he said, you know what? We're reopening. (laughs) (laughs) He just took the keys and went and reopened for another half hour and let us walk around and touch the grave. And it was just wonderful example, I think, of the selflessness you often see from the Uzbek people. They really appreciate foreigners and tourists and they uh, they try and show their 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 best uh, uh, they put their best foot forward when people come to visit. I, I've always felt welcome when I'm in uh, Tashkent. I can tell you that. Hospitality, I think it's... Uh... Hospitality is important. Tell us, Eldor, what is it that made you a leader, in your opinion? Well, uh, I would say it's uh, patience. Patience, commitment to goals which I set, and to work I do, and most importantly, to my team. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah, the goals... Goals-based living is is important. I'm trying to institute more of that in my life as well, I can tell you. And tell us about the future. What does the future hold for, for Eldor Manopov? I guess nobody knows, but uh, uh, hope, you know. I hope, uh, hope that dreams and plans we make will be realized, materialized in a way much better than we have or could have ever anticipated. You're hoping for better times. I, I have to agree with that. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Eldor, for your time today. Uh, this has been a great, uh, great little chat. We were joined today by Eldor Manopov, uh, who is the managing partner of the Denton's uh, law firm, the Denton's practice in Uzbekistan, and he is also honorary consul of Canada in the Republic of Can- Uzbekistan. Has been since 2017. So that was a great chat. Thank you for joining us, uh, and we look forward to our future contacts. Thank you. Bye bye now. You've been listening to Icebreakers, a podcast produced by CECC, the Canada-Eurasia Chamber of Commerce, supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the nations of Eurasia. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the show and give us a review on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. You can join our LinkedIn group to address questions to guests. To find out more about the series or to make a donation, please check out our website at www.ceccpodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in.